0: All right, here we go. Welcome everyone to another episode of Growing Design. Today I'm speaking with Justin Dauer and um, I'm very excited about this conversation because uh, Justin is probably one of the most experienced persons I've had the uh, um, pleasure to speak to in this podcast. So I'm really excited to go over his career and talk about what he's learned and what he's up to these days. Um, Justin, do you want to do a quick summary of um, uh, who you are and what you do currently?
1: Uh, sure. And it's great to be here, Ed. I appreciate it. Uh, my name is Justin Dower. I am a, let's see, where to begin? A lifelong Chicagoan. I always have the most boring uh, origin story in any uh, introductory s- session because I, I guess I really left the nest, uh, so to speak. Um, design is, you know, it's, it's my career, but it's also my lifelong passion. It's not really something I uh, clock in and clock out about, so to speak. I'm always tinkering and learning and very much consider myself uh, a student of my craft, agnostic of how many years I've been in the field. Um, And I've been, you know, in-house, out-of-house, worked in tech, worked in design studios, um, been in design leadership and design management probably the last I don't know, near almost two, two decades of my career. And now I've uh, started my own uh, small design consultancy as well. So kind of span the gamut of various design positions uh, ever since graduating art school. And um, hopefully there's some experience and some insights I can lend that are helpful to other folks as well. Sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. So I do
0: know, let's maybe start from the beginning. You said that your origin story is uh, is boring, but nevertheless, uh, I would like to um, to get a little bit of background on how you ended up doing what you do today. Um, so I guess design school was the first step?
1: It was um, actually uh, technically, I guess, the second step. I fell in love with graphic design when I was in high school, I want to say, I probably my second, third Uh, year in high school. Uh, And it was absolutely transformative for me at that point. Um, You know, I I was focused on grades by proxy from my mom, I guess. And and, uh, when I found something that leveraged my um, critical thinking uh, uh, abilities or skill set with visual communication, that to me, I just like knew like this, this is it straight away. So I, I put a portfolio together uh, went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in a time when, you know, there was no digital design curriculum per se or web design curriculum. We're talking um, mid-90s at that point. I graduated late 90s. Uh, and and that level of uh, exploration, I suppose, and self, this isn't a word, but self-taughtness, like, you know, gobbling up books on JavaScript and Uh, very uh, rudimentary programmatic um, uh, abilities as well to align to that really helped me get that formative training to align my uh, visual communication uh, exploration with the uh, programmatic implications of those decisions very, very early in my career. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating to kind of deconstruct design as it applies to like what I like to call the digital landscape. And, you know, the, the problems to be solved and the rules to be broken and what rules existed. And it was just this really, you know, I, I call it the Wild West era of web design because the rules were very rough and people were figuring out uh, the rules as we went along or what the possibilities were even, I should say, more in, more interestingly. And uh, that's shaped the trajectory of my career. It's, it's uh, you know, it, it's been design centric ever since then, uh, in various roles, like I said, studio based agency based within tech, within healthcare, um, as a consultant, um, you know, I, I, like to be challenged and I like to find where my best fits are. And, you know, as I've kind of evolved in my career and, and that's helped my, my serpentine career and evolved in the various ways that it has, um, but, yeah, it all started with art school and that uh, very formative, you know, basic layout and, and typography and studying the, the masters like uh, Mueller Brockman and Sutner. And um, I value that traditional education very much. But um, I also say it probably instilled some rigidity in my thinking as well, which is why I appreciate, you know, now uh, leading teams and such. When I hire folks who are not designers and who have transitioned from different fields and they have different perspectives and different outlooks and diverse ways of thinking, which uh, helps me grow as well.
0: Yeah, I love that you mentioned the sort of like the classics of um, graphic design, um, like Brockman and all of the people that came out of the Bauhaus or were Bauhaus inspired. Um I always feel like they set the, uh, they set up the foundation for everything that folks are doing these days and a lot of um, I've come across a lot of designers who are not familiar with the work of uh, what happened back then, but they sort of like through their career, they've learned these principles or they've absorbed them just because that's kind of like the most optimal way of solving some problems. So without knowing that without knowing them, or without being aware of the work of these designers, they already apply these principles, which I think is really is really fascinating. So like you mentioned, it's always um, a worthwhile endeavor to go back and review that material. You can always learn a lot of stuff. Um, cool, so you were like that kid who was always in high school making drawings during math class.
1: Yeah, that's accurate. That's that's. I'm I'm still now. I'm I'm that guy who's making drawings in the middle of Zoom meetings. <laughs> so I guess uh, some heavy notes. Never die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Air quotes, taking notes.
0: Yeah. Nice. Cool. Um. Yeah. That's very cool. So, uh, moving on in like the timeline. I I guess um I don't want to date you or anything, but like sort of like was that during like the dot com era? Or was it like before the bubble
1: burst? I would say um, my. Or second, third. Second or third position uh was in the dot com era. I, I was a um uh design consultant. I think the role is actually called a visioneer, which is sounds like Disney esque, which is pretty cool. Uh for this uh um tech company that no longer exists. It, it was a victim of the dot com uh bubble. But I was that, that was such a weird time. Um I would wake up in the morning, I'd get a, a call from my boss and he would say, you know, you have to be on the ground in San Diego or you have to be on the ground in Tampa um, or Dallas uh, at 4 p.m. And I was young and single and it was very easy to just pack up shop and, and you know, hop on a plane and, and be there. And then I would work there for a couple of weeks and design and, and code up a, a demo uh, for a, a supply chain management dashboard to close uh, deals with massive clients. And I would get a check from this a uh, uh, closed deal and a check from this and I didn't even know where the money, like the money in the dot-com era was just crazy. Um, and then uh, I was living above my means, and the dot-com bubble burst and uh, I almost went bankrupt because <laughs> I was young and I wasn't saving. And I was like, woo, money everywhere. <laughs> so, you know, lesson learned. Um, I was very young and then that taught me how to save straight away. But yeah, it, I, my, my, I want to say my second or third um, position was in the dot-com era and that was a, a crazy time. You
0: mentioned, so you were building dashboards and stuff. Um, if I'm not mistaken, back then, there was no front end, back end. It was just like building the stuff. Like you would do everything. Like you would do the database. You would do the visual design, the layout.
1: Yeah, it was, um, you know, I, I I would put the hooks in place for the back end um, to connect the things. But I, I would come in at the pre-sale stage. And like I said, it was a supply chain management base. So like... Um, IBM was a deal I remember closing, um, and I, I, you know, I was early 20s, uh, and I went out to IBM, one of their larger bill, uh, offices just outside of Chicago, and I went there and I helped put together a demo with the pre-sales team um, in a supply chain management capacity. And It was like a workflow where I would, I would um, make a faux interface where someone would air quotes log in, they would check on this, check on that click on some buttons and it was like maybe like five or six screens. Right. But I would design it. I would code it up and then I would make like a fake click through with just like form action, submit on on buttons uh, to get to drive it through. And then a, a salesperson would go up there and like walk the client through the demo and then it would close the deal. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was high pressure. You'd go in and out and help the sales team close something. And I'd be off for a few weeks or something like that. And then, you know, I'd get these crazy checks coming in from here, here and there. And just, just weird. No, not think fun. about it. Yeah. Fun and <laughs> fun and intense. Yes. Cool.
0: Nice. it's so like, okay, the, the bubble burst, everyone is a bit, a little bit lost. No one knows like this internet thing, is this going to be like, uh, going to uh, like a passing trend is like, it's going to turn into anything. Uh, you continue obviously in your career growing. Um, how did you get from there to like leading these large design teams? Um I want to get to the part where like you end up leading uh, the, the team for design at CVS Health.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think it was, if not the, the next role I took or right after, um, it, it evolved where I uh, ended up managing a team or building out a team and managing, you know, maybe uh, two, two, three people tops, uh, building out an interface design team uh within a tech company at that point. I, I want to say that's the role I got next after the dot-com bubble burst. Um so web hosting was still it was a web hosting company. That was still very much a need that that folks had. And um I saw a need uh within the company to uh improve the interface with their uh, authenticated web tools, domain management, uh a rudimentary site building suite. <clears throat> so I wrote an email to uh the CEO and I said, I, I see some opportunity here. And um, I said, I thought, you know, maybe uh, he'll, he'll be interested or, or worse comes to worse, he'll delete it. <clears throat> or I guess worse, worse comes to worse, he would fire me. But that didn't happen. So uh, he came over and he said, you want to get some lunch? And we got lunch and I pitched my idea uh, to, <clears throat> to build this interface design team out. And he loved it. And I came back and he changed my role on the spot. Um, and I sat in a different area and I built out a team. <clears throat> So I had a bit of a uh Alec Guinness caliber uh, my God what have I done moments when I'm like oh my god this worked now I have to build out a team and I have to actually manage folks so um, it, it was probably sooner than I was ready for to manage folks but um, I knew it scratch niche that I didn't know I had and that helping others achieve their goals in tandem with my hands in motion so I was player coach I was doing design and managing folks which is not um, not fun per se. But I knew something else was there that I could be rewarded by. So I started managing people pretty darn early in my career. And I, I've led and managed teams since then in, in various capacities. So it was, it was, you know, early 2000s, maybe mid 2000s um, at that point where I started managing people. But um, it was from then on that, it, that uh, I've been leading teams and it's been great since then. Oh, nice. Um,
0: did you have any sort of like imposter syndrome? I don't know if that was a thing back then when you started like telling people what to do.
1: Uh, 1 million percent. Yes. And I, you know, I still have it, um, in various capacities along the way as I've done pursued other things in my career, but Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, I, I looked, I looked early twenties. I'm sure I acted early twenties and, uh, I was just, you know, pretty green at that point. And, uh, there were other managers twice my age, uh, if not more at that point. Um, so I, I, I felt the heat from uh, various angles. Uh, Imposter syndrome was uh, certainly one of them, as well. <laughs> it's certainly one of them as well. Nice, it's
0: fun. Um, all right, so you kept growing. Um, how did you end up at the at CVS Health? And what was that? Because like I don't know if if it, I guess it was at that point, but CVS is huge, it's massive, and um, the the budgets that they manage and the amount of people working in that team must have been like a whole different scale.
1: Yeah. So I was, um, VP of design with a company that <clears throat> CVS health acquired. Mm-hmm. I was a VP of design, um, with a company called B Swift. B Swift was acquired by Aetna. Aetna was acquired by CVS health. So then my email address became, you know, CVS health and, uh, all my, uh, you know, 401k and stuff became CVS health as well. So we were v- very much a part of that family. Um, And it was interesting to be acquired twice within a short period of time um, and, you know, have to adjust to two different tiers of uh, culture, uh, you know, acquisition trickle down uh, culture, uh, which made the methodologies that I had put in place with the company that was acquired, twice acquired, uh, even more um, near and dear to me to protect, I should say, because uh, we are... Uh, integrated uh, twice and you know there's various policies and manuals and ways emails are created and, and you know you think of voice and tone and a brand that comes through and, you know how management is uh, uh how how they communicate with the organization what the signage is on the walls etc cetera, etc cetera. so um it was interesting uh, being integrated in that capacity and, and being a part of that family. And like you said, the scope obviously changes massively on decisions or the implications of decisions. I had an incredibly supportive and phenomenal um, boss that I'm, I'm I'm so thankful for. I reported to the the C-suite um, at that point, and he was uh, an advocate and respected. You know what I my unique voice and. What I brought to the table in, I'll say design thinking, I don't mean the design thinking methodology, but infusing design into the way, you know, we create or hired or um, welcome folks to the team. Uh, And, you know, he was just very uh, fantastic in that sense. So it could have been more challenging. It was challenging, but I had, you know, as is important in any role, I had support from the top down, which is invaluable. And at that most senior table, Uh, and it made things um, much more streamlined than it could have been. I'll say that.
0: What's well, sort of like their take on design in that kind of company? Because um, most of us, and probably people listening listening to this podcast, are familiar to how design um, is regarded from in the tech industry and like how you know software. But when we're talking about a company that sells physical products for the most part, um, it must be completely different. Or or are there any like overlaps?
1: There are overlaps for sure. And, you know, given a, a company of that size, we're talking a Fortune 5 business at this point, they had, of course, their own design teams and, and various uh, capacities. You mentioned physical products and, you know, pharmacy and store design and kiosks and what have you. We were largely the business I was associated with was largely benefits administration and enrollment. Uh, so that was more my angle and sphere of purview, if you will, but uh, very mature, I would say to your, to your original question, the folks that were already there in the organization, they, they do a heck of a job uh, at CBS Health corporate proper. Um, you know, given the industry and, and given the imperative for human connection uh, and healthcare, above all, of course, merged with, with big tech, if you will. Uh, so I thought they did a fantastic job. And I was appreciated, I always appreciated being able to collaborate with those other teams um, as I had the abilities. And sometimes, you know, we would reach out and talk about research or work that's been previously done, or of course not stepping in on other people's toes or, you know, doing work that's already been done. Um, so it was, it was a mature practice and I I was very pleased to see at the larger level, um, um, some very healthy, um, people first slash human centered design practices already in place.
0: That's great to hear. Um, was this around the time you started working on your first book
1: creative culture? It released um, right when I joined them. I, I think I, I wrote it when I was with the Swedish uh, design agency, Nansen Rose, uh, director of design uh, in North America. I wrote it during that time and it released right when I joined uh, that company B-Swift, which was before we were acquired by CBS Health. I think we were part of Aetna only at that point uh, when I joined. So, uh, as I when I released the second edition, I mentioned uh, CVS Health in some capacity, just you know being a part of that team. So of course, at that point, the legal approval uh, level <laughs> was a little more intense, and I had to submit it for legal approval. And they read this you know section where I mentioned them, and all was good. But um, yeah, it started at that point, and then it overlapped when I released the second edition to be further part of that family.
0: What drove you to 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 write the book? Was it like like this nagging idea that you had in the back of your mind for a while, or was it like you woke up one Sunday and say, "Oh, I want to write a book"?
1: A little column A, a little column B. It, uh, largely, the impetus for that was having worked in the um, American agency sector for a good part of my career, and um, you know, agency culture in the in the U.S. and I'm sure other places as well has has uh, certain um, health issues let's say with how folks are regarded or how they're how they're treated um, or viewed as resources or how the out uh, the work-life balance can be um, uh, certainly a trade-off and I, I didn't uh, truly grasp um, how unhealthy uh, some of my roles had been until I joined uh, that Swedish agency that I mentioned called Nansen and I was tasked with building out the uh, design practice uh, in in Chicago, as, as well as, uh, the States as there were further acquisitions. And when I was exposed to Swedish culture and Swedish leadership and the values inherent in that culture, egalitarianism, respect, um, pausing with intent or slowing down to speed up, if you will. Um, it just, it melted my brain. It was, it was like this, um, You know, getting out of an unhealthy relationship, and then you you have that uh, um, hindsight of uh, you know all the stuff like how it can be done more or less, and it's okay to do this, and it's okay to treat folks like this, and it's okay to welcome people into a team in this capacity. That was the big uh, driver for the book, and I wrote an article for um, a list apart called "Resetting Agency Culture" to test the water on some of these theories, if you will. And the reception was really fantastic uh, from people in radio from people in, in print and, and journalism and uh, from all different forms of where design touches um, product or output, if you will. Um, and it was agnostic of the design sphere. And I, I thought like, this is bigger than resetting agency culture. There are bigger themes at play here. So I put a draft together for a book and I reached out to a book apart with the, uh, that uh, draft and uh, we agreed to put a book out together. And, uh, as, as you know, I started writing it, I think they helped me edit the first like three chapters. I think I got three chapters deep and then for various factors, um, they decided to self publish instead, which allowed me to take more control of the brand. And, you know, I, I, wanted to work with illustrations in the book and, and have that, that hummingbird character be a, a gender neutral character that kind of signifies the reader, uh, going through these various phases of, you know, day one through, uh, more seniority in their career. Um, And it it was very well received, which I was pleased with. And some of the methodologies there, um, you know, I've talked to folks in various podcasts about how to welcome a team member via the new day one methodology on a Friday instead of a Monday and the values behind that. And, um, it's, it's, it's been great. And I I appreciate that. uh, Hopefully it's helped some folks uh, along the way as well.
0: What's the thing I'm curious. What's the thing about
1: welcome welcoming new team members on Friday? Well, you think about the normal way, um, or let's say the, the typical way people are usually um, welcome to a team. And it's probably on a Monday, right? Because there's that, the thought that there's five days spanning ahead and I can go into training or I can shadow or, you know, God forbid, I can get thrown into project work right away, um, which has <laughs> happened to be before. Um, I, uh, hopefully not for folks, but um, that's like the the standard, right? And that that is the, the uh, plan momentum, the pl- the momentum of five work days, Um and the practice that was put on my radar at Nansen, uh, by a fellow named Jan Orvit, who's, um, a great friend and colleague of mine was welcoming people on a Friday instead because you want a different momentum and it is a ment- momentum driven by our values, respect, compassion, uh, empathy, valuing people as a unique individual with a unique voice over a name on a spreadsheet. And, uh, you welcome them on a Friday and, um, it's leveraging all the empathy we would have for somebody uh, for, from experiences throughout our career. Like I've joined roles before where I've come in and my boss didn't show up until the afternoon and no one knew who I was or what my job was, or they're like, you know, blowing dust off a keyboard. And it's like, I guess you can use this. And it just makes you feel small. And it makes you feel like the energy and the excitement you had from signing on the dotted line to the coming that first, like there's a huge disconnect and it just is like, what happened? Like what, where did I go wrong? Um, but, you know, this person is joining my team and they're entrusting me with their to be supportive of their evolution and and growing their uh, experience with their craft. And I want that to be felt not just in the way we create, but in the way I, I treat them uh, on my team. So they come in, I show them around uh, where the coffee machine is, where you can work, where the mother's room is, et cetera go to their their desk uh there's a computer waiting there with a card signed by the team welp- welcoming them uh maybe some flowers help them get their laptop set up around lunchtime we um go out for lunch which is standard but after lunch uh ask them you know take me someplace in the city that inspires you which is invaluable i feel because it affords an uh, insight into what drives this person as a creative unique individual Far more than a portfolio of work could ever yield. It's the spatial considerations. It is the values behind why they do what they do. And I've you know gotten immediate answers. I've gotten um, no answer at all, which is fine. I have something teed up if there's no answer. But you know, when we go to this place. I'm always like, why am I here? Why did you bring me here? And uh, get great answers about career transitions. And I had this life event here, and or something. I observe this moment momentarily, and you really get a, a view into what drives them to do what they do. Um, And then we call the day at like one, two o'clock and uh, we're not going back to work. I want them to, you know, go back home or go back wherever. And sometimes they hang out where we're at and think about why, what happened happened. And the momentum then is them going into the weekend. I want the weekend momentum instead of the weekday momentum. So they can talk to their friends or talk to their family or, or take to social media or just heck just plain old think about um that day and then they come in monday and then we can start you know talk and shop a little bit more but um it's it's putting our values where our mouth is if you will actions over words uh to show that we genuinely do respect this person and value them for who they are yeah that's beautiful and i think it's
0: uh it's so true um it gives you the opportunity to um connect with people in a in a different level it's not about what are you going to do for us but like you know let's learn about you like who you are as a person, especially if you didn't have any, any um, opportunity to talk to them during the recruitment process or during the, it's a great opportunity for you to like get introduced to uh, other people. And it, you can, you have kind of like this rit- ritual of like celebrating that we have this new colleague that we're going to be working with. We're going to see, you know, probably more than our families. And we want to sp- make a connection at the human level. I think that's, that's really nice. Was that something that was a standard practice at the Swedish age, uh, Swedish agency at the time?
1: It was a practice. I don't know if it was, sta- it was a practice by the fellow who hired me, uh, Jan, who I mentioned before. That was his way of doing things. And I've talked to other folks along the way and some people are like, oh, I do it. Th- I, I agree with you, but I do it on a Thursday or I do it on a Wednesday. And But it's the same kind of methodology, if you will. Um, deliberately doing something atypical that is demonstrative of your personal or your, your organization's values. Uh, so it's been great as I've been talking about this and I've been talking about this for a while at this point um, to hear variations on a theme from people who are doing it uh, kind of the same or differently, but, you know, agnostic of the variations on a theme, it it always comes back to values in play and, and re- respect, which I think is um, obviously at the core of something like this.
0: So with this whole thing of like, Pausing with intent and like approaching your your in a different like in, in a maybe we can call this slower way. I don't think it's actually slower, but like has like what about the argument? Because I'm I'm pretty sure you've heard this before. The argument of productivity and output. Because I know in the U.S. is like oh yeah, more hours equals more output, whereas that's completely not the case in in the Nordic countries for sure. Not in Sweden. Um, how's that conversation usually, like, how do you regard that conversation?
1: Well, I think it's incumbent upon me if I, you know, if I'm in that, <clears throat> uh, leadership role and by leadership, I mean, in this instance, I mean, hierarchically, I don't mean anyone can be a leader, but you know, if I have that position on an org chart where it gives me, um, it enables me to have higher level conversations and advocate for my team or advocate for slowing down. It's incumbent upon me to have those conversations at that point. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's definitely um, come up, but when I can ask for change in that capacity or advocate for change, and I can have metrics to back up why we should make that change. It's not, let's slow down because my folks are tired or let's slow down because, which is totally uh, viable. Let's slow down because, we just need to step back from the work and get some fresh eyes. The organization's going to, you know, they're going to groan because it's like, okay, that's, that's cool. But like, how does that come back to the bottom line? If I can come back with the proposing change and have track trackable metrics that back it up, like, you know, the last time I, I, I asked the team to slow down a little bit and I advocated for it, uh, you know, we our usability testing metrics were infinitely higher because we were able to have fresher eyes. We were able to like put together a more thorough test plan or, um, it, it reduced QA time ultimately because we had more testing time in advance of that. And it, it was, you know, we, it, it produced a less buggy release, you know, a fairly, uh, 30,000 foot examples. But when I can have trackable metrics that bring value back to the business about why I want to slow down to speed up or why I want to pause with intent or why we need two more weeks to do a little more usability testing or, or get some more, uh, you know, um, research based insights, uh, to drive our design, that all comes back to change, and I've I've had to have th- those decisions. I'm am sure many design leaders have had to have those decisions, and, and and metrics are what ultimately move the needle in that sense. Yeah.
0: So you hold these values of passing with intent and connecting at the human level with your with your peers and your your uh, designers that are reporting to you. Um, these collection of values serve like have guided the way you. Um, sort of like approach work throughout a a big portion of your, of your career, you call it, I guess, the North, the North star. Um, how do you like give importance to, to that North star and how do you like advocate for people to like find it, find that North star and like find, identify the values that they should like, you know, put above certain other aspects when considering opportunities.
1: Yeah. By, by North star, I effectively mean, um, how are you charting your path? You know, what is driving you? What is the beacon that is, you know, enabling you to do what you do? Like if someone asks you, why are you a designer? Do you have, can you answer that straight away or do do you kind of pause or stumble on that, uh, on that question? And I think as I've gotten, um, further in my career, and this is a, you know, uh, not to name drop my book, but if this is a big part of the, uh, newest book that I have in fulfillment, the designer's journey about our values um, being that North star in our career and identifying them and prioritizing them and, you know, leveraging them in a portable capacity, agnostic of profession in our personal and professional uh, relationships. It is just such a key thing to drive the connection to our work, to drive the connection, uh, to one another and really to drive the connection to those who are engaging with our work. That's why, you know, fulfillment is certainly important for us in our portfolio and our connection to our design, but we have to be mindful of the bigger picture and go from that me to we caliber mindset and be mindful of those who are engaging with what we create in a million or billion different possible scenarios that we can never uh, foresee. So uh, being able to identify your values, there's a platform, um, and, you know, I, I, I even... <laughs> I, I pause for a little bit saying platform or framework because, you know, th- there are certainly negative connotations around frameworks, you know, being the ones that are driving us instead of us driving the framework or leveraging it to our benefit. So I just want to put that out there. I'm mindful of, you know, even lever- promoting a framework, but uh, this one I, I very much believe in and invested it in it's called make meaningful work. And it is a um, platform that helps us identify our values and the practices in which we thrive by, telling stories, our own stories, our own personal narrative. And then we can you know take a, a story from any part of our life or a day at work and we can kind of like dissect uh, that story and find the moments in which we thrived or where we succeeded and extract from that our values, which is beautiful because then we can take those values and we can apply them like I said to different professions or if we're having a challenge at work. But I know one of my values is compassion. How can I leverage compassion in that dynamic Uh, and see, you know, track it day over day to see if if leveraging, like if I am going into a meeting and it's politically fraught and I have a a meeting with another uh, group within my organization, like just letting them speak first. Uh, you know, not going in there with a head of steam and and wanting to butt heads right away, just hearing them out and getting, getting a sense of what their lens is and what challenges are they facing? And then seeing, you know, does letting them speak first, how does that track week over week or how might, how might I pivot or adjust? Um, You know, and I'm I'm just scratching the surface here. There's a lot you can do with it, but um, uh, it's one method. I will say there's probably a a million methods uh, to track where I thrive, why I thrive and, how I can leverage it to best uh, succeed in any relationship uh, in my life. So um, I think that, that is the North star and that, you know, helps drive connection to our work, quality of our work, um, advocating for more change uh, that is healthy for folks who are engaging with whatever product we're pushing out um, to their benefit, as much as the bottom line of the business, both are, are very important, obviously. Um, And it's just being mindful of all those holistic considerations.
0: Was this sort of like a driver for you to start your own design consultancy?
1: That's a great question. Um, And I paused for a moment because um, it's something I haven't directly considered, but I I will say it is. My values and um, the environment in which I know I can best thrive uh, and where I can provide, you know, to use the word value again, where I can provide the most value based on where I know I've, I've thrived the best in my career. Uh, based on where I'm at, I think it was time. It was my time and uh, to do, try something uh, for myself uh, that leverages an environment I've, I've crafted that allows me to engage with businesses to provide value on healthy engagement or healthy design craft or building um, a healthy culture from the ground up um, or building design teams. Those are all things I've done in my career and I've been able to like pluck those moments out or those dynamics out. And I've been, Oh, I was really fulfilled by this because of X, Y, Z, or I really did a great job here because of X, Y, Z. And it's leveraging, um, you know, a lot of what we do in our career, uh, observation, um, uh, making, um, lists based on those observations of how we can leverage that value towards other parts of our design work. Um, and it's just being crystal clear on those, uh, points of, of value and, and what uh, fuels us to do what I do, um, so yeah, to your, to your question, absolutely. That uh, is something that um, helped me make the pivot. And of course, it's a giant leap of faith when the buck stops with you and <laughs> you have to provide your own health care and all those things. Uh, it's it's a, a little bit of a scary uh, decision and you have to sit in some discomfort for a bit, but um, knock on wood, hopefully it pans out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a big difference when you face those challenges without motivation versus when you face them with meaning, when you know and you believe that this is the right thing to be doing at this point in time. A lot of this reminds me of this um, the Ikigai concept uh, of the Japanese. I don't know if you're familiar with them, where like, you have alignment between all of these factors that are important, uh, like the financial aspect, the uh, um, when you have when you find meaning in your work, when you're doing something that you love, when you're helping other people. And when all of those things align, you you find this great satisfaction in, in the work that you're doing. And I really think that's the best way or that's the, the that's a, a great environment for you to put out your best work forward.
1: Excellent point. Yeah, somebody put that on my radar within the last um, handful of years, Ikigai. And uh, boy, I, I felt that was such a harmonious alignment with um, a lot of my, my personal beliefs. And uh, the environment w- which within uh, we exist is, is such a non-trivial thing to do our best work. It, it is the support there. And, you know, not to sound new agey, not that there's, there's anything wrong with that, but is the right energy there, uh, for me to do my best work and be connected and, um, create under, um, you know, uh, human centric, again, agnostic of the discipline, um, uh, uh, constraints about, you know, having the right time to do the right, the best work and, all of those things that enable us to, to be our best at what we do. Um, and again, a big driver for me to uh, make this decision uh, to start my own business uh, at this point in my career. And I, I had uh, an offer on the table to build a design team again uh, within a large organization from the ground up uh, before I made this decision. And it was, it was a pretty uh, enticing offer, uh, the whole package. And I turned it down which felt like an affront to the design gods to make that decision. But I, you know, I talked to my wife and, and my family uh, about this before I, I went through with it. And I had full support, uh, which again, was just a non-trivial decision when you have kids and, and you, <laughs> you got to keep the lights on. Um, but it was the right decision to do because this is, you know, this is a, a statement laced with privilege, but I've already, I've already done that within a larger Organization. I've already built a team like that, and I faced those political constraints. and It took five years to build a healthy design organization within a large organization, and have them, you know, being a well run, well supported machine organization wide at the end. And I felt like I ticked that box. Uh, I've accomplished that, and I, I don't need to manage folks directly in order for me to be able to help folks grow and evolve. Um, in their career. There, there, there doesn't have to be an org chart uh, thread there for me to still scratch that edge, if you will. So those realizations were a lot of the drivers behind me uh, doing my own thing. Yeah,
0: yeah that's the fairness the part. Um, it must be kind of crazy to like reject, uh, turn down such a, such a great offer to do your own thing. But I guess the only way you can actually make such a hard decision is to be really convinced that is the right time to do the to do this, and even if I mean I'm I'm really hoping and like I'm cheering for you, but like even if things don't work out, you knew that you did you took the right um, decision at the right time because this is what you wanted to do, this is what felt right, this is what aligns with your values, this is what aligns with the type of work that you want to be doing and the companies that you want to be working with. So that completely changes. Uh, what the like when you start with that foundation, the outcome is almost irrelevant. But at the same time, you have all of this drive and energy to to make it work.
1: Excellent points. Those are those are uh, absolutely factors that um, help me know I, I I did the right thing uh, for me and my family and my work and my practice. Um, I, w- I will say, you know, uh, timeliness wise with this talk, what has been a, a distinct challenge is um, a, a couple things. The economy right now is not so strong. So uh, organizations are tightening the purse strings um, on design quite a bit. So um, <laughs> when I have sleepless nights about oh, did I do the right thing? Like that's something that certainly comes up because businesses are being a little more close close to the chest and what they are willing to spend or, you know, extending engagements or things like that. So that was like a, Holy cow, what have I done a calorie moment just to be, make myself completely vulnerable. Um, but I think that the value there is being able to help teams, uh, connect agnostic of in-person or remote seats or growing teams from the ground up. Um, to make sure they're engaged and healthily supported, I think that those are timeless considerations, and particularly given the pandemic, because remote work, uh, which is fantastic, or hybrid work, or uh, is so much more or are well supported now. I think teams and organizations are still struggling with how to best, um, you know, now that they've air quotes allowed teams or folks to work in that capacity, how do they make sure they're engaged or not overwhelmed with video meetings, or how to, how is asynchronous work best supported? Uh, that's just the way people are going to be working now, and you see a lot of like bigger tech companies like um, forcing people to come back because they have these big rents that they want to they need to get value out of, and they want folks back in the office. and And teams are resisting, or employees are resisting, and I say good for them. Uh, so, being able to find a, a healthy middle ground there, if you will, I think those are all considerations where. Um, I could provide value and, and hopefully is something that, um, you know, kind of transcends uh, the, the current uh, economical climate.
0: Yeah. Speaking of um, remote work, um, you started at a time, you started your career at a time where remote work was not even feasible. Like it was not a thing. Um, and you know, the you're very familiar with the energy that you get from collaborating with other Creatives and and with other people in the same room for a few hours um, towards a common goal. Um, there is a very different dynamic when you're working remotely, and like sort of like to give you what my my perspective and my perspective on it is. I think they're great for different things. Like there's stuff that's really great when you're doing remote work, like deep focus and that kind of thing uh, and also you know work life balance uh, but there's also some component in doing in person work that is very hard at least at this point with our current technology to replicate the like the energy of being with another person that high bandwidth connection with other people and seeing like their micro expressions and how they pace around the room and you know how they sip their their coffee those kind of things that like you said like we are not um, um, we are very aware of those uh, of that environment. Uh, what's your take on it? Like how do you like because I guess it comes up a lot with with your, with your clients and when you talk to, to other teams.
1: Yeah, those moments of serendipity or, or going out to lunch, um, certainly valuable, but I don't think the uh, full success or efficacy of a team hinged on them, uh, if you will. So it's part of uh, a dynamic, I think, that was um, part of the value of the in-person dynamic, I should say, that I think was definitely valuable and something I appreciate of bumping into people in the hall or, um, you know, like you said, being able to read expressions uh, to better help somebody uh, throughout their day. But it's not to say we can't still have those uh, visual cues or those moments of discovery, Um in an async or remote capacity. I think it's on us to figure out how to make that happen. I think we're still figuring out how to make that happen um, in some senses, but I, I could probably count on my hand over the course of my career, how many times having bumped into someone in the hall or lingered after a meeting yielded something that dramatically changed a project. You know, I think we might have some little rose colored glasses uh, in that capacity, but you know, at the same time, how much time that I maybe lose, uh, you know, uh, chewing the fat, if you will, after a meeting with the team uh, or meeting with somebody after the fact or technical issues, et cetera, et cetera. So I, you know, I'm making stuff up now, but I I think long story short, there, there are pros and cons uh, to both dynamics and I think, you know, if we're in the position to grow teams or lead teams or or manage folks in a business capacity, it's on us to keep figuring out how to best make that work or best support folks in an async capacity or I don't know, provide open like Zoom just introduced that functionality now where they have that ongoing like chat room line, it just like never shuts down. Like you have a meeting, but it's like always there and you can like pop in and type thoughts as they come up. You can see like businesses like trying to figure it out exactly what you cited, how to capture those moments of Hey, did you think of this or, or something like that? Um, so we're we're getting there, and you you know you're, you're definitely right, and I, I've mulled that over quite a bit. Um, I, I do miss some of those moments, but at the same time, as much as I cherish my, my commute, sometimes my commute sucked, or sometimes it was a pain in the butt to go in the office, or I, I used to, I got sick more going into the office because you know people were sneezing and not covering their face, et cetera, et cetera. So I, you know, pros and cons to both. I think we'll just have to keep figuring it out. Yeah, that's true. It's just that. I guess
0: because people are mostly used to like in-person work. They kind of like gloss over like the, the things that are, that actually suck, like the commute and right. stuff like that. But, and there's also the component of like, you generally do less work when you're at the office because you talk more to people because you go and eat because coffee, a lot of, whereas like when you're working from home, provided you have the right discipline and the right setup, you can easily get two more hours of good work per day uh, compared to like the office. Um, that's I've, I've had the opportunity of doing both. That's sort of like my, my take on it. I used to be like very like uh, a strong advocate for remote work. Now I am more of like, like you said, there's pros and cons to both, but I do think that a lot of folks that are still stuck into, in, in kind of like the old mentality don't give um, async communication and remote work a fair shot. So I think, they look more at like the cons than the, than the pros. And like you said, like technology is advancing. We're finding new ways to work um, remotely. Like now we have these crazy headsets like the, the Apple Vision Pro and whatnot. Who knows if that's the future of remote work? Like Only time will tell. But at least you can see that a lot of great minds and big budgets are being invested into, into making it uh, a lot more useful for people.
1: Great points, yeah. Great points across the board. I, the the only other um, sprinkles I'll add on that cake is uh, enforcement of boundaries, both at the personal and team leadership levels, are imperative because, like you said, it, it's it's certainly possible to to work more, be more efficient at home, but because uh, a commute can often be from your bed to your kitchen table, or just not even leaving your bed. Uh, those lines are much more uh, blurred and fuzzy and gray, uh, delineation between personal and and, um, work lives. So being able to, you know, have the ability, the supported, um, articulated uh, ability from the top down to close your laptop, to be able to take a nap, to uh, uh, not have to respond or have the implication I need to respond immediately to a Slack message. Uh, Those are all these I don't mean to sound like a sociopath. Those, these are all these fascinating um, remote work cultural nuances. I think that are the uh, problems to solve that are just really something else, um, and they're and they're challenging, and they're uh, evolving, and you know we have to be as amicable to get things wrong and, and evolve and like take those as learning opportunities and grow and evolve and in terms of how to best support people. But, um, just, just something to be mindful of the, the, enforcement of boundaries, you know, as I'm sure, you know, when we're remote workers is huge. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: would you mind giving us, uh, regarding your, your, your two books, um, would you mind giving us like a one liner, uh, sort of like, Intro of each one of them and then to see, like, people decide which one they, they want to be or, or both, and uh,
1: where can they buy them? Certainly. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, cre- uh, creative culture, uh, two editions. The first edition is Cultivating a Creative Culture, the second one is uh, called Creative Culture, uh, Human Centered Interaction Design human centered interaction inspiration. Well, anyway, it's called creative culture and there's a tagline. It's been a while (laughs) since I wrote it. Um, so there's two editions of that book. Um, creative culture is a bit more macro. I think I've gotten more macro to micro and it's about the, um, creating, uh, leveraging the same values between how we create and how we treat one another. Um, uh, to do our best work, if you will. And it leverages the tactics, anything from, uh, you know, like we said, the new day one, which I think is in the first chapter in that book to, uh, on the day to day, how to be inspired from, um, certainly from our work, but, um, growing our, our sphere of uh, inspiration, if you will, to, to one another, to our environment, um, to pushing ourselves to not just, you know, Google top web design trends, 2023 or 2024, but actually like being inspired by everything around us. Um, not things, not in design things we see, uh, when we're out, how people are in, interacting with one another, um, taking notes, taking pictures In short, we work in a digital capacity, but we don't have to be uh, limit our sphere of inspiration to that digital capacity. Um, and then it, it goes through, um, uh, ways to inspire us, ourselves at work and, and way to ways to best connect. Um, and again, marrying the ways we create and the way we treat one another. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a book I'm uh, I, I'm pretty proud of over those two editions. So that's uh, creative culture, the dash culture is the website. Uh, my newest book, which just came out uh, a week and a half ago or, or uh, ish at this point in fulfillment, the designer's journey, If you consider uh, fulfillment, uh, uh, the jewel, so to speak, all the facets around fulfillment, uh, connection, values, identification, uh, the way to identify those values to best um, align to our work. Like I said, the make meaningful work framework. And again, that goes from, uh, you know, starting as a designer to finding our best um, cultural fit and culture fit could be a swear word when it's a, a, a business Screening people outwardly, but inwardly from us to the business, it's absolutely a valid concept. Finding the, the business and environment that best will allow us to do our, our work and how to, how to interview effectively and how to find a, a great business. And once you're uh, in leadership, um, how to, again, leverage your values to move the needle uh, for business value and, and team-based value. Um, so uh, the, the second book is much more a design book. It's, you know, designers are in the title. It looks like a design book. The content is, is a design book. Um, uh, this is one I was proud to, uh, build the brand from and design from the ground up. Um, I think the first book has some, a list of part centricities to it, which is, is not a bad thing, but this, this one, uh, the second one is, is, um, is something I'm very proud of as well. So that, that is, uh, in dash fulfillment.com for that book. And you can choose to buy it, uh, wherever you best see fit Amazon, your, your local retailer, et cetera.
0: Great. Um, thank you for the for the quick summary. Um, I'm really interested in reading both of them. Unfortunately, didn't have the time yet. Um, but I'll 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 grab a f- uh, copies of them and definitely read them a little bit. Actually, the whole thing. <laughs>
1: no, <I'm just laughs>
0: Appreciate it. <laughs> read the whole thing. Uh, great. Uh, final question: What's the best pizza in Chicago?
1: Uh, that's a tough one. You know, yeah, deep dish. I think when I sweat, I sweat deep dish, which is a disgusting <laughs> visual, but, uh, it's just like, it, you know, that is to say it's in my, it's in my blood, uh, being a lifelong, uh, Chicago maybe Pequod's, um, is one of my favorites. Uh, some folks come here and they go straight for Giordano's, which is fine as well. Um, there's a lot of great pizza here. I, I've been to New York. New York has, has great pizza as well. Um, so I'm not going to, you know, be super, um, we have the best, but um, I'll say Pequods. Pequods. How do you spell that? Uh, there's a, e, a p and an e and a q and a u in there. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if there's an a, but if you Google it, uh, you'll, you'll find it. If you watch the Bear on on uh, Hulu, uh, Pequods is in the second season
0: nice i'm gonna i'm gonna take a look justin it's been a pleasure chatting with you it's been really great um if people want to connect with you provided that you want to connect with people where should they uh reach out
1: yeah i, I welcome the connection absolutely i am uh, at pseudo p-s-e-u-d-o room uh on effectively any form of social media or uh linkedin um so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty darn easy to find ultimately. And I, I welcome the connection. I welcome feedback. Um, and I'm not just saying that to pander. I appreciate um, the objective feedback and I, I consider it a growth opportunity. So I welcome any connections and any dialogues I might spawn from here.
0: Great. All right. Uh, it's been great. Um, have a great rest of your day and um, talk soon. Thanks, Ed. You too.